0: All right. You trying to read my shirt? First, first Baptist Church. Yes, yeah, so a dirt bike goes, brah. <laughs> it's the first Baptist Church. That's right. <laughs> <me out. laughs> my poor wife. I see this stuff as I'm, you know, I'm like, woo, bye. So we are in 2 Kings. We're going to finish up uh, chapter 6. We have to, because Dad's starting chapter 7 in the second service. So we got to finish up chapter 6. We're going to get through it. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we are so thankful to be here. Uh, Lord, we're so grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord God, right now, if there's anybody in this building right now, Father, if there's anyone who's coming to this building who is beset by, by sadness or guilt Uh, or discouragement, Lord God, uh, and just does not, is not feeling it, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come alongside them right now, Lord, and that they would feel your loving arms, embracing them, Lord, that your Spirit uh, would fill them up, Lord, and that they would just feel you all around them, Lord. We ask and pray that uh, your Spirit, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your love would be very palpable and present in this place today, Lord. Uh, Lord, and that you would bless your people, And that you would bless us, Lord, with more of you, more of you, and more of you, Father, so that all of our fears and all of our failures, Lord, and all the things that we confess before you day after day, Lord, would just fade away and only you would remain, Lord. And we pray that we would live our lives that way with you ever before us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And Lord, please cover this scripture for us. Amen. Uh, So 2 Kings chapter 6, we got as far as verse 8, I believe. Uh, the floating axe head. You can't forget that that portion. That's a great, great portion. Uh, But we're going to pick up in verse 8, and it starts like this. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, that's Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel went, <clears throat> excuse me, sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, "'Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel?' And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That may have been an exaggeration, but that's how they looked at it. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send, I may send and get him. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So where we're picking up here, the, the, uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was a constant enemy of Israel, uh, and he was always seeking to make war against them. Now, if you recall, uh, under the rulership of David and Solomon, the Syrians had been put completely, had been completely brought to heel. Uh, the, the nation of Israel was the dominant empire in that region at that period of time under King David. It was established, and then under King Solomon, it was expanded upon. Okay, So by the time we get to the end of King Solomon's reign, almost, not they never fully, understand this too about the nation of Israel, they never fully and completely uh, covered or took possession of all of the borders that God had originally given them. That God had said, this is to be your land, or rather, this is to be my land in which you are to possess. They never, never fully took all of the land that God had set aside for them. But under Solomon, it got about as close as it ever was. And then immediately following the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam uh, speaks, you remember the whole whole story, the the elders of Israel come and say, hey, your father was hard on us, man. You see all this stuff? You see all the buildings? that, That was us. Now give us a break, and the wise old elders said, do what they say, and then they're going to love you, and blah, 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 but his young punk friends said, no, you tell them my little finger's thicker than my father's waist. You know, think of the arrogance of that, to say about King Solomon, You know, uh, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist, and he speaks roughly with them, and that's how the nation ends up being divided. Of course, we know that this was all part of God's plan. God had said the nation is going to be divided into two parts. Why? Because Solomon had fallen into idolatry, right? Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines from all over the world, and the Bible says that they turned his heart away from the Lord, right? Anytime we're pursuing, chasing after the passions and the lusts of our own flesh and of this world, guess which direction it's going to take you—towards the Lord or away? What do you think? Away from the Lord. Uh, and so God says, because of this, that the kingdom is going to be divided. And He lifted up, He raised up Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, to be the one who was going to be king over at the southern kingdom, which was going to make up, be made up by ten out of twelve tribes. It was going to be a big portion. And God said, I'll establish you, Jeroboam, if if you worship me only, if you serve me. Well, we know how it went. He gets scared because he doesn't want people to go worship in Jerusalem and their hearts be turned back to Rehoboam. So he begins to set up golden calves and idols and Baal worship and Ashtoreth worship is brought back into the nation of Israel. So sad, so tragic because God had made very distinct and clear promises all the way back to Moses telling the people, this is what will happen if you worship and serve me alone, and this is what will happen if you turn away from me. Don't think that because you're Israelites, you are somehow better than the Canaanites. Right? They are being driven out of the land. They are going to be driven out from before you and I'm dispossessing them, and some of them I'm going to have you wipe out because this is my judgment upon them for the wickedness. They have polluted the land with the wickedness and the darkness that they practiced of the very worst kind of sorts that you could possibly imagine. And God made it very clear to the Israelites, do not think that just because you're Israel, You can act like the Canaanites and still be blessed. Don't think that you can act like the Canaanites and still be under my blessing and still receive all the things that I have promised for those who worship and serve me only. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I'm God, right? And He is a just God, and He is a holy God, and He is the judge. People have a problem with God being the judge. I mean, it was a slogan for a while. You saw it on social media and on t-shirts and everything else and t- tattoos of it. Every Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, people say that because they want to avoid being judged by you. But make no mistake about it, mankind as a whole, I'm not talking about every individual, but mankind as a whole, they don't want to be judged by God either. Because when the Bible says, thou shalt, and when the Bible says, thou shalt not, they say, I think not. They don't want to live according to God's laws, and they don't want to be judged by Him. you got to understand, this is the world you live in. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing's new under the sun. And when you see people fighting against God, reeling against God, hating God, and hating you because you're associated with God, or hating you because you take a stand on God's holy word, understand, there's nothing new under the sun. The Syrians hated the Israelites. And all the nations around the Israelites hated the Israelites. As soon as they were in a position where they had some power, which Syria did at this point in time, where they were stronger than the, nation, than, than the kingdom of southern Israel, the southern kingdom, they immediately begin the attacks. They immediately begin going after them. In this case, we have Ben-Hadad, and he's trying to set up an ambush to kill Joram the king of Israel. He's setting up these ambushes to try to take him out. Now, what's interesting to me is that even in, in the midst of all of this, we see the grace and mercy of God because whose father was Joram? Who was Joram's father? Do you guys remember? The one and only Ahab, right? King Ahab. And God had promised that Ahab's house was going to be brought to destruction. God promised that. He prophesied that. And yet, God sends Elisha The Tishbite, I don't even know what that means. That's where he was from, (laughs) I guess. Tish. He was from Tish. He's a Tishbite. God kept sending Elisha to warn him, this and such and such are the king of Syria's plans. Don't go down there because he's lying in wait for you. I wonder about that. Isn't that amazing, the grace of God? Here's a guy that God says, listen, these people are are heading straight for judgment. They have completely and utterly rejected me. And yet, and we saw it even in the life of Ahab, God was willing to show mercy. He truly is a merciful God. And so time after time, Elisha was telling the king, and he was being warned, and it says more than a few times, so that finally the king of Syria uh, thought to himself, there's got to be a spy in my midst. I've got to have a turncoat. One of my people must be going back and and telling the king of Israel my plans. Now, I don't know how this servant that spoke to him and says, no, it's Elisha, And Elisha speaks to the king of Israel what the king of Syria says in his bedroom. I don't know how he knew that, but the first thing that came to my mind reading this is, I wonder where um, Naaman is in all this. Remember, Naaman the Syrian, he had leprosy. And he he was sent by the king of, of, of Syria to Israel to be healed. They knew about this Elisha. And remember, Elisha healed, or God healed through Elisha, Naaman the Syrian. And Naaman becomes a worshiper of Jehovah. Remember, he says, I want to take back Israeli dirt (laughs) back to my my home country. I don't know what he was planning on doing with it, making like a big prayer area out of Israeli dirt so we could worship Jehovah. And he said, but please forgive me this one thing. When the king goes into his temple to worship his God, he does lean on my arm. I'm his right-hand man. And Elisha said, go in peace. Go in peace. So Naaman's the real deal. He's a convert, and he was at the right hand of the king. So I wonder if that's where this understanding and this knowledge about Elisha came from. It's interesting because you don't hear a lot about Naaman after that event. So uh was he was he was he cast out? Was was he imprisoned because of his worship of Jehovah? We we don't know. But it's an interesting story. So ben Haddad's surprise attack plans are being thwarted, and understand this, by God, right? Not by government intelligence, uh, not by a spy, not by any such thing, but by the hand of God, his plans are being thwarted. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes, Okay. All of our government leaders, all of our officials and the presidents and the Congress people and kings and queens and dignity from all around the world, understand this, they're in God's hands. They're in God's hands. There's nothing that they can do if God wills it to not be so, right? And and what that should do for you and I is give us some peace, (laughs) to give us some peace, to not be freaking out every time the government's doing this or the government's doing that or we see this or we see that. Understand. God's plan is being played out. God's prophecies are being played out. He knows exactly what's happening at all times. Psalms 2, 1 to 5, you guys know this one very well. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. God's timing and his plan are often a mystery to us, but we can take comfort knowing that whenever he needs to take control of a situation, he can and he will. He can and he will. We should not concern ourselves so much with what God's plans are, but rather that we are a part of them. Right? Yeah. I I, I want to know, God, what is what is your plans? You know, you ever feel like you're in a need-to-know situation and God's saying you don't need to know? You ever feel like that? Well, it's true. I don't need to know God's plan. My prayer should be this: God, I just want to be a part of your plan. I want to be given to you wholly and serve and worship you alone, and I want to be a part of your plan. I don't want to be st- stomping my heels into the dirt and saying, no, I won't go, I won't go, because I don't like where it looks like it's leading me. Or I don't like the things that are happening around me, so I'm going to stamp my feet in the dirt and stand. no, no, God, let me have a pliable heart, and let me allow you to take care of all the big issues that I can't control, all right? I want to be a part of his plan. Uh, It's interesting because... um, um, I'm sorry, I, 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 I skipped a spot there. Um, I was, I was uh, just kind of amusing of mine. I was wondering how Elisha felt being messenger boy <coughs> to King Joram. Now remember, this is King Joram. He is not a friend of God. He is not a friend of Elisha. Uh, and Elisha had just about had it with the southern kings of Israel, okay, and here is Elisha, and God is using him to perform all of these amazing miracles. Remember, he raised the widow's uh, son from the dead. Uh, you know, he, he caused an axe head to float amongst the prophets. He changed the, the pot of the stew that, had, that was poisoned. He, was able to, he did all these amazing miracles. And now God has Elisha running back and forth to warn Joram of, of trouble. And I wonder how Elisha must have felt about that. I wonder if that was bothersome to him. Like, I'm, now I'm a messenger boy. But we don't read anything about that uh, because I think that Elisha was uh, a man who didn't just act humbly, but he actually was humble before the Lord. And he was a man that wanted to be a part of God's plan. That's, That's the feeling you get about Elisha. That no matter what God would have asked him to do, and really all of the great prophets of the Old Testament, you get through some of the, we read through some of the prophets and you see some of the things that God asked them to do, it's pretty rough. And God was using their life, their lives, to be an example of something to the nation of Israel. And He asked them to do some pretty crazy, strange stuff sometimes. But the true prophets of God, the hallmark of them was that they never questioned God. The New Testament tells us that the prophets of old, they wondered about these prophecies that they were prophesying, they wondered about these things that God was speaking. They had no idea how it was really going to play out, how it was really going to look. They could have never imagined what Jesus Christ was truly going to accomplish. And yet the scripture teaches us, but they remained faithful and obedient to God's word. And they were justified because of that. I love that. Uh, So so again, this happened enough times uh, that the king of Syria thought there must be a spy amongst his men. Uh, And I wonder where that came from. Now we're going to continue. Verse 14, Uh, well, actually, let's, let's go back to verse 13. So he said, Go and see where Elisha is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? You ever see that in the the old movies? Whatever shall we do, right? I mean, can you imagine how freaked out you'd be? It's not just a few guys. Remember when the king king of Israel sent 50 uh, soldiers and a captain over the 50 to fetch Elijah? Because Elijah had, had made his prophecies and, and remember when he had fallen through the lattice and he was injured and he sent to the gods of the Philistines, the gods of Moab, he sent to, to inquire, will I be okay? And Elijah met him on the way and said, is there no God in Israel that you're going to go seek these, these false gods, this, this, this Baal, you're going to go seek the Baals? And he pronounced judgment and said, no, he's going to die from his injuries. And remember the king was angry and said, go get him and bring Elijah to me. And the captain went with his 50 and he said, man of God, come down. And Elijah said, well, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And And the king sends another 50 and they show up and there's Elijah and there's the black patch on the ground. And this guy marches right through and says, man of God, come down. Well, if I am a man of God, this is how I see it happening, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you and your 50 men. And fire comes down and consumes them. The king sends another 50. This guy sees Elijah and the burn patch, and he kicks off his hat and he goes, uh, Sir, <laughs> uh, man of God, please, please have mercy on me. Remember, when God relented. But it's not just about Elijah being angry or Elijah being prideful or Elijah saying, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. God was judging the house of Ahab through all of that. You understand, that was a purpose that God was serving. And he was showing these people, you do not have power over God. You do not have power over God. You cannot disobey God's will. You cannot go against God's plan and think that you're going to be successful. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how great of an army you have. It doesn't matter how many people or how many governments are behind it. It doesn't matter. No one can fight against God. Uh, <clears throat> so <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was, that was interesting. This, this guy, unlike King Ahaziah, who sent 50 and 50 and 50, this guy sends an army. He sends an army with chariots and horses. It reminds me of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. Remember when Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go up to, they're they're, they're up on a hill and they see this garrison of the Philistines and Jonathan's like, what do you think? Should we go attack them? "Uh, You mean like just you and me? And this is what Jonathan said. Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us and here's the part I love. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And I hope you guys understand this. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter the difficulties. It doesn't matter how insurmountable the odds are. Chuck Smith, he, one of my favorite things I'll never forget that he preached, and he was talking about faith. And he was saying, Our faith or our lack of faith is, is, is made evident in the way that we pray sometimes. He said, You know, if someone comes to you and says, Hey, uh, you know, could you pray for me? I've got a headache. Yeah, absolutely. Lord, Lord touch, touch and heal the headache. If that doesn't work, take two Tylenol and call me in the morning, right? But if someone comes and says, hey, I went to the doctor this week and I was diagnosed with this disease or that disease. Oh, and then, then the prayer changes. Get out the oil and get out the, you know what I mean? We, woo you, this is really going to be tough work. But if someone was to come and say, uh, you know, listen, um, I lost my hand in the war, And it really is a pain not having that left hand. Could you pray to God that he'd grow it back for me? You would go, come brother, give me a break. God doesn't do that, except in some lizards and octopi and stuff like that, right? But Chuck Smith made this point. He said, is there any difference in God's economy? Is it harder for God to grow a new limb back than to heal a headache? Well, the obvious answer, if you're a believer in God, is absolutely not. And so the question is, how many things in my life or how many miracles or lack thereof do I see in my life because of my lack of faith, because of my lack of belief? With God, there is nothing that is impossible. And with God, it doesn't matter if it's many or few, God can save. Um, So here's Elisha and his new servant. Gehazi's been terminated, (laughs) remember? Remember? He, he, he took some, some money uh, from Naaman the Syrian and, and then lied to Elisha about it. And so uh, Elisha said, well, you know, now Naaman's leprosy is going to cling to you, Gehazi. And he went out from him white as snow, the Bible says. So now Elisha's got this new servant and he wakes up in early in the morning. I don't know if he heard commotion or what is Guys, you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you just get a sixth sense about something and you, and you make your rounds about the house? Please tell me you do that at least a couple of times. <laughs> I sleep like no. I I sometimes every once in a while I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I just have a feeling. You know what I mean? So I get my AK-47 and my hand grenades. No. So I walk the. I'll case the house and, and just make sure everything's okay. Imagine you know, this guy gets up in the morning, and he's looking around. Oh, I heard a funny funny noise, and he goes outside and the town is surrounded by all these soldiers and horses and chariots, which in today's economy, that's like tanks, right? The chariots were the tanks of those days in that era. And he's dismayed. Can you imagine that he would be dismayed? Uh, He is distressed, and I think naturally distressed. And so the servant of the man of God rose early, went out. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And he says, alas, my master, what shall we do? I love it. Verse 16, So Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wowzers. Here's what I wonder, was Elijah, Elisha able to see the angels all the time? You get the feeling here when he says, God open his eyes so he can see what I can see. Was Elisha just walking around and just seeing angels everywhere? Hey, Gabriel, good morning. Hey, it was a good one yesterday. I like that one. Hey, Michael, what's up, bro? You know, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think it was Elisha's faith that was big. I don't think that he had some uh, supernatural ability to just, anytime he wished, see into the supernatural. I don't believe that at all. I believe that Elisha just believed. He believed to the point where he took it for granted. Do you believe in God enough where you simply take it for granted he's going to take care of you? That you just take it for granted that he's going to see to your needs? That's the faith that Elisha had. He just simply believed it. And he prayed that God would open a servant's eyes so he could see it and then believe. It reminds me of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20 and verse 29. Remember Doubting Thomas? And they're like, he's risen. The Lord is risen. He's, Listen, unless I put my fingers into the nail holes in his hands, unless I put my hand in the, in the spear hole in his side, I'm not going to believe, Jesus appears. And he walks up to Thomas and he goes, put your, put your fingers in the holes. Thomas. Can you imagine Thomas? Oh, you know, I wouldn't really want to put my finger to put your finger in there. You know. <laughs> and Jesus said this to Thomas Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You Understand, he's talking about you. He's talking about you in part. If you have never seen Jesus Christ face-to-face, which I haven't, if you've never seen an angel, which I don't know, but yet you believe, you absolutely believe with all of your heart, in fact, it's more than just believe, you know experientially that he is there and that his angels are set about you, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. And in God's economy, that is good stuff. Uh, let's see. So, uh, I wrote down here that probably none of us have ever seen such a sight, but we can rest assured, uh, that we are just as well protected by the Holy Spirit and his angels. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, you guys remember this portion. Um, Jesus said this to Peter when Peter made his confession that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and here it is, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, I heard a guy preach one time, and he was saying, you got to understand, he didn't say that, the gate, that, that hell will not prevail against your gates. He said that the gates of hell would not prevail against you. The picture Jesus was giving is of the church storming the gates of hell, not us defending ourselves from, the, from hell storming our gates. You, you understand what I'm saying? It's offensive here. Jesus was saying that in the church of God, Peter, in the church of God, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There will be no stopping the church that is led by my Holy Spirit. Boy, and isn't that exactly what we see in the first century church, and at various times in history, where God has moved in the hearts of his people, and they have gone into, think of Elizabeth Elliot, you know, and some of these other great missionaries of old going into like the gates of hell and God's Holy Spirit just prevailing there. Prevailing there. Takes a lot of faith, I think, uh, to see that kind of stuff. Now, God does something completely different with the Syrians than he did uh, with Ahaziah's captains, those captains of the 50. Um, Starting in verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, "'Strike this people, I pray, with blindness.'" And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, "Uh, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. Now Elisha was not lying to them. He was absolutely going to lead them to the man they sought. In fact, the man they sought was going to be the one leading them to the man they sought. Right? So Elisha wasn't being deceptive here. He was obeying the voice and the will of God. God was not just going to destroy these people. God was reaching out to the Syrian army to testify of who He was. And we're going to read it. It's a beautiful thing. So, and how does this look? Elisha leading a blind army. I guess the horses weren't blind. You know what I mean? Those horses were good stock back in those days. You know what I mean? Follow that man. You know. And you got the. Can you imagine the king of Israel looking over the palace walls? What is that now? That dust? Let's say, give me my. I don't know if they had anything like this. (laughs) It's Elisha and a Syrian army following him, just walking, and they're doing this. (laughs) You know what I mean? And he leads them all the way to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Now, isn't it interesting Elisha's servant wakes up in the morning and he goes out and he finds them surrounded by the armies of darkness, so to speak, right? By the Syrian army. And he's terribly afraid and they're not there to make friends. Then God does this amazing thing where he strikes them with blindness and Elisha leads them right into the city of some area, right? Which is southern Israel, right into the city and then their sight is restored and the Syrians open their eyes and they see that they're surrounded. Now they're surrounded, but they're surrounded by a different people. By a different people and by a very, very different God. Uh, and there they were inside Samaria. Verse 21. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, My father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill them?" You know, it, you, it's like I, I can't really read into this. Was this like a bloodlust on his part? Was he all excited? Like, like, ooh, 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 can I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? Or was he literally absolutely perplexed and saying, my father, what do I do? Now, at this point in time, uh, the king, king Joram is extremely fickle. Extremely fickle. In a few verses, we're going to read about him wanting to take Elisha's head again, right? But now, because Elisha has been helping him, remember, he's telling him the king of Syria's battle plans his ambush plans beforehand, and saving the king of Israel now, several times. Now all of a sudden, Elisha is his father. Why? Because things are going his way. Right? Listen, don't let me be that guy, Lord. Don't let me be that guy that I'm praising your name and I'm singing songs about you and I'm telling people about you when things are going well for me. And then as soon as things aren't going well for me, I'm down in the dumps and I'm not talking to anybody about you and I'm not singing your praises. I'm just moping over here in the corner. I don't want to be like that. That's how the kings of Israel were. It's exactly how Ahab was too. Remember, he would go and he would mope. So he's asking Elisha, should he kill them? I don't know if he wants to or he doesn't. But Elisha answered him in verse 22 and said, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you had taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food, in other words, he's saying here, if you took captives, you wouldn't then turn around and kill them. You would kill them in the battlefield, but if you took them for captives for some reason, you would bring them in and you would see to their needs as captives. What he's saying here is a couple of things. It's no different with, if you can show mercy, how much mercy do you think God is going to show? Number one. And the other thing he was saying is, they ain't your captives. These are the captives of Jehovah. And this is how Jehovah is going to treat his captives. You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you had taken captive with your sword and your bow? Now set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Notice in verse 23 then he prepared a great feast for them. Can you imagine being these Syrian soldiers? And you're sitting here in the city of Samaria, surrounded by the enemy, quote unquote. And not only are you spared, but they have a party for you, they have a feast for you you know how much food that required this is food that belongs to israelis not syrians and yet they have a feast for their enemies Um, uh, they ate and drank and then he sent them away and they went to their master notice this so the bands of syrian raiders came no more into the land of israel and I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what that's all about. If that was an act of, uh, okay, thank you for showing mercy. Now we're going to show mercy by not sending bands of raiders into Israel anymore or whether the bands of raiders themselves were like, I don't want to deal with any of that weird stuff. You know what I mean? Whatever it was, the raids stopped. But nothing had changed with Syria or how they felt about the kingdom of Israel. Um, Proverbs 25, concerning God having uh, the king take care of the Syrians proverbs 25 21 to 22 if your enemy is hungry give him bread to eat and if he is thirsty give him water to drink for so you will heap coals of fire on his head that's talking about the conviction of god right when i was young i used to love this verse because like when i'm nice to people who are jerks it's like heaping coals of fire on their head you know what i mean I kind of did it in that kind of way. Like, you know, I'll fix you. I'm going to be super nice to you. I'm going to give you Jesus' love and let him fix you. You know, no, that's not what he's talking about at all. What he's talking about is when someone is mean and nasty to you. The other verse I have is Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone is in your face and you just go, listen. I'm sorry if I offended you. That was not my intention. I want you to know I am not a threat to you. I'm not, I've, I've done this many different times in different altercations on a job site or in traffic. <laughs> One time, when I was young, younger, younger, way younger, in my 20s still, just walking with the Lord for a few years, and this guy cut me off on I-81, and so I followed him all the way back to his house to kill him. And we got to his house, and as we were pulling in, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take this guy apart. He's who? Knows? He probably would have beaten the crap out of me. Who knows? You know what I mean? This is how me, the arrogance, the anger, all the stuff I still had going on in my heart. And all of a sudden, like the conviction of the Holy Spirit just like overpowered me. And I, I guess exactly how it happened. I pulled right up behind him in his driveway, and he got out of his car, and he's like this, like. Okay, let's see. what. And I, and I went up to him and said, I want to apologize to you. <laughs> I said, I want to apologize to you. I'm so sorry that I was driving like that and acting like that. I'm supposed to be a child of God, and that's not how a child of God acts. I'm very sorry. Will you forgive me? And he was like, whatever. <laughs> and I got, I, got my, I got in my car and drove away. Um, but what I found later on is it's amazing when someone is right in your face and you just say, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, Like, if I hurt your feelings or offended you, that was not my intention. If I, if I did so, would you forgive me? I, I want, how can I help? How can I help you? And they're like, well, that's not supposed to happen. right? There's supposed to be a fist fight in the middle of I-81 or something. That's what people expect. So when it talks about heaping burning coals upon them, that's the work of God. That's not your work. When you turn aside a, a wrath with a kind word, when you respond to someone who's hateful or angry towards you with kindness or even an established enemy and you do something to feed them, to take care of them, that's when God's work begins. But his work always is done in the midst of us having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Right? Brokenness. That's what it is. Pride, pride comes before all sorts of trouble. Humility That's where God works. That's where God works. Um, So uh, verse 24, and it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So just because the raid stopped, the way the Samarians felt about, uh, or the Syrians felt about Israel had not changed. Um, We may go through periods of time in our lives when the world likes us. uh, And if we don't share our faith or stand on the word of God, we may go through our whole life With the world liking us. But our stance, uh, the world's stance rather, on our faith will never change. The world, this world, is at enmity with the things of God. The wisdom of this world is at enmity with the wisdom of God. And the way that people live in this world are at odds with the Word of God. That will always be. Jesus was very, very direct. In pointing out to his disciples okay if the world hates you remember this it hated me first Uh, i heard a preacher say everyone loves jesus everyone loves jesus until you define jesus and suddenly where is the love suddenly they don't love jesus anymore we got to get Jesus out of the schools. We got to get Jesus out of that. What are the Ten Commandments? I'll get this, get it out. Get you understand? Don't 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 get angry about that. You understand? It's a visceral reaction. You know the Bible says that to those who are seeking life, guess what? You are you're the fragrance of life. But to those who are perishing, to those who hate the light, to those who hate God, you are the aroma and the stench of death to them. So when they have a reaction to you based on that, don't be upset, don't be angry. Like Jesus said, don't be upset. Hey, to me first. This is, this is the way it is. And if we're standing on the word of God, we're going to have some enmity with the world. That's just the way it goes. So um, I think the king of Syria comes up with this siege because all of his ambush tactics weren't working, right? Elisha was was going and telling the king, he's going to be here at the corner of Fort and Dixon, (laughs) you know what I mean? Uh, At 845, make sure you don't go that way. Okay, and it would be thwarted, thwarted, thwarted. Well, now he says, well, we're going to go siege the city and let the prophet tell him because they got two choices. They got two choices. They can either come out and fight us, awesome, or they can flee the city and give it to us, awesome. Right? But there's no way to avoid what's going to happen. So the siege happens. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Ben Hadad was entirely blind to the power of God. And unfortunately, so was the king of Israel. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged the city until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Then, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor? In other words, there's no wheat there. Or from the wine press? In other words, there's no wine there. So all you got is God, because I can't do anything for you. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? Don't say you're hungry, (laughs) because we're all hungry. And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. This is the complaint she's making. She wants to sue her neighbor because she won't let her eat her baby because we ate mine the other day. Now, what happened when the king heard the words of the woman, at least he had some sort of a conscience, uh, that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath, he had sackcloth on his body. Then he said, God, do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today." Uh, so <laughs> this is horrifying to us, but remember, it was not horrifying to a Canaanite. It would not have been horrifying to a Canaanite. In fact, there's a lot of argument between biblical scholars and rabbis and Jewish tradition as to what was the condition. This is a horrible thing. I apologize that we're talking about this. This here's where we are in the Bible. Okay, they may have died. The kid. They may have been already dead from starvation, um, and you know. It's just, it's just a horrible thing to discuss. We don't know, or if they killed their own children and ate them. If, if that if that's true, you know it's 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 unimaginable. It's horrible. Um, but to a Canaanite, it wouldn't have been. And the Israelites at this point in time had become like the Canaanites. You could barely tell them apart. Desperate times with godliness brings about miracles, but desperate times with wickedness. Brings on those desperate measures. Have you heard? You've heard that one, haven't you? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Not with the Lord, it doesn't. Not with the Lord, it doesn't. Desperate times for us calls on prayer. Calls for prayer. Uh, So before Joram was calling Elisha, father, father, but now he wants to kill him. And interestingly enough, it says when the people looked up when he tore his robes, it says he was wearing sackcloth underneath his robes, which the sackcloth represents repentance. But he had them covered with his with his with his kingly robes, and he had sackcloth on for whatever reason. Maybe he thought God would see that and, and do something, but there really was no repentance. That's what sackcloth represented. Sackcloth was representative of repentance, of repentance, repentance, repentance. And King Joram didn't have any of that in his heart. But he wore the sackcloth because I think he was he was uh, I think he was. Um, Oh, when you believe in uh, superstitious. <laughs> uh, the way I remember that is the Stevie Wonder song popped into my head. Uh, so so uh, we continue here. We're going to finish up uh, verse 32. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see now how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look! When the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of my master's feet, uh, of his master's feet behind him? It's interesting uh, that Joram sends an assassin to kill Elisha, forgetting about who it was who had warned him of several assassination attempts against him. But he thinks he's going to take Elisha by surprise and kill him, take his head off. Um, and so here's, here's the, the transaction we have between them. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king, King Joram, said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Now here's what he says. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You understand, Elisha, not only am I ready to cut you, I know who you are. I know you're the prophet of Israel. When I chop your head off or when I seek to chop your head off, it's going to be more than just chopping your head off. It's going to be symbolic of this. I'm done waiting on God. I've tried it God's way, which he never really did. And now I'm going to do it my way, right? I am not waiting on God any longer. Uh, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? First off, it's exactly because the calamity was from the Lord that he should, be, should have been waiting on him. <laughs> it's exactly because of that. Secondly, Joram never waited on the Lord. And if you have a timeline, if we have a timeline that we've assigned to God, we're not waiting on God. Uh, if we say, I've waited long enough on the Lord, then we were never waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is waiting on the Lord. And if we're waiting on the Lord, it's done in faith and it's done in belief. And there's no timeline there. There's no timeline. I always talk about my buddy Mike Baird, uh, single guy, in, into his 30s, never kissed a girl. And not because he didn't want to. Nobody would kiss him. And uh, <laughs> Mike, I hope you're listening. <laughs> I love you, buddy. But this, he was, never kissed a girl, okay? And he was waiting on the Lord to bring him a mate, right? He was well into his 30s before he met Celine. And people would say, Mike, you got to get out there, okay? Hit the clubs. Hit the Christian clubs. <laughs> you know, go to a different church where there's, where there's a whole bunch of loose women running around, you know, and by loose, I mean free. <laughs> you know, they're like, they're free, free is what I mean. There's a whole bunch of women running around. You know, you need to get, your, go on an app, get an app, go on a website, okay? No one's, you think God's just going to drop a woman in your lap? But he had listened to a message and the pastor was talking to the young men in the church and he said, Hey, dummies, do like Adam go to sleep and let God bring you your bride. Stop being on the prowl. Stop being on the hunt. Then you know what you're going to find? Somebody you find. You want somebody God brings to you. And Mike listened to that and said, I believe that. I'm taking that to heart and I'm going to trust in that. And he waited and he waited and he waited and he waited and he waited. And he waited. And let me tell you something. we had many conversations at, at nighttime in my driveway where he was say I don't understand you know and he used to say to me you didn't do anything right your whole life <laughs> you know, and look how God's blessed you with a family I'm like I I, I I agree I don't know why you know Mike I just keep trusting in the Lord keep trusting in the Lord and I'm walking of, well, he's, he's at the end of his rope honey and then one day one day I walked out of the sanctuary in between services and those doors opened and the, the, the outside doors opened and there was Celine and there was birds nesting <laughs> and her hair was blowing back and there was ooh, ooh, like this and I was like oh. <laughs> like you know and I, and I just I met her and I was like hi how are you good my name's Frank I'm not creepy it's nice to meet you um, can I introduce you to someone? <laughs> and I introduced her to Mike. And they're now married with two children. And they are so mates. They are best friends. Because Mike said there's no timeline on waiting on the Lord. And it's the same thing for anything in your life. We get restless and we start to do it ourselves, and in doing so, we bring, at the very least, at the very least, we bring inconvenience on ourselves, and at the very worst, we bring destruction and mayhem on ourselves by not waiting on God, not waiting on God, right? It's a good lesson for us to learn, Um a couple verses to end with, Job 42, 1-2, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. The NIV says, when you make a plan, nothing can stop it. I love that. Proverbs 19, 21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, it's the Lord's counsel that will stand. Many plans in our hearts. God's counsel is what we should be after amen let's pray Lord thank you for your word Uh, Lord thank you for your uh, your saints Lord who are willing to sit here and listen to me go on Lord just to hear your word uh, spoken Father I I pray and ask that you would uh, write these truths on the tablets of our hearts Lord we would everywhere we go we would be hearing your voice waiting on me is waiting on me Lord help us to have that kind of faith and believe in you You're in charge of everything that's happening on our planet, Lord, and off planet. Uh, Lord, you're in charge of the seasons. You're in charge of the weather. You're in charge of uh, the governments of this world. Lord, there is nothing that's going to happen or take place uh, where you're going to be knocked for a loop, Lord, or where you're going to say, that wasn't my will, or that wasn't according to my plan, Father. And it's hard for us to accept that sometimes when we see so much wickedness uh, on the earth today, Father. Uh, but we know that you ultimately are in charge, Lord, and ultimately you're going to come and you're going to redeem us from this world, Lord, and we're going to be with you for eternity. So we pray Father, that that's the economy that we would live in. That's where we would put all of our hopes and our dreams and all of our treasures, Lord would be stored up in your kingdom, Lord, rather than in the kingdoms of this world. Lord where moth and rust destroy and where Silicon Valley banks collapse overnight. Uh, Lord, but we would hope and trust in you for all things, Lord in Jesus name. we pray, Father, uh, also, Lord, I'm thinking of my, my brother, Mr. Ike. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for sparing him, Lord. We ask and pray now, now, Lord God, that you would touch him, his mind and his body, Father. And we pray and ask that you would bring complete healing and restoration to him, Father. Uh, what a blessing he is, uh, Lord, to us in this body and, and no doubt to his uh, children and his wife, Lord. Um, he, has, he is one of the most just steady Stalworth honorable men I've ever known, Lord, and I know that he loves you, and I pray, Father, that you would be with him in his spirit, Lord, and that you would completely heal him. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray and ask these things. Amen. 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 Love you guys.